0: And thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 412, Courage and Cowardice. Last time, on August thirteenth, 1942, as the Merchantman Empire Hope was hit by three JU88s, but finished off by the destroyer Penn, and the Brisbane Star, another merchant, was hit by a torpedo from an HE-111, though she survived to make for the Tunisian coast, the tanker Ohio was still afloat, blackened by fire, but still heading to Malta, though at an inconsistent seven knots and was currently ten miles behind the main convoy. But it was that last fact that probably saved her, as the German and Italian planes were now laying in to the main group of freighters. The day before, August 12th, there was another kind of battle brewing, but this one was being fought with, Not shot or shell, but steel determination and, hopefully, acceptance from one of the antagonists. Around the time that the destroyer Ethereal was using her body to ram the Italian sub Cobalto, Prime Minister Churchill was coming down in his bomber at an airfield just outside Moscow. He was going to have his first meeting with Stalin. Given Operation Barbarossa, the Prime Minister had flown from Cairo, thus skirting the combat zone. But that wasn't the scary part. That would come when he had to tell the Soviet leader something he did not want to hear. Actually, it was the exact opposite of what Stalin wanted to hear. Still, needs must. Churchill wanted to be face-to-face when he told Stalin that he and FDR, the President had authorized the Prime Minister to speak on his behalf, that they would be joining up to invade not mainland Europe, but North Africa, i.e. there would be no second front in 1942. Churchill later wrote, It was like carrying a large lump of ice to the North Pole. The reason that Churchill wanted to conduct this meeting in person was that the Prime Minister and the President were thinking of more than just this moment. Yes, Soviet Russia was facing a crisis that had already seen numerous countries fall, and Russia was probably next. Probably, but not definitely. And just in case that did not happen, the two Western powers wanted Stalin to know they were committed to winning and to helping Russia stave off this colossal invasion. In other words, Churchill was about to find out if the old bulldog could bring round the Man of Steel what made this challenging at the outset was that Churchill and Stalin both already knew how they felt about each other and their systems of government. As Churchill would brazenly write, we had always hated their wicked regime until the German flail beat upon them. They, the Russians, would have watched us being swept out of existence with indifference and gleefully divided with Hitler our empire in the East." True enough, but it was the same, at least the first part, for London. Had Nazi Germany taken Moscow, it's doubtful that Churchill would have lost much sleep. But now things were different. The West needed Russia to keep fighting, while the Americans continued to bring themselves up to full strength. And to keep Russia fighting, no matter how many battles they lost or millions of men killed, Stalin had to be convinced that Moscow, London, and Washington were in the same boat to lose one might be to lose all that could not be allowed to happen so stalin was about to receive a very sincere churchill but not so much hat in hand as in we have a plan that's different from what you think but i think it will be just as effective if not more so please hear me out when churchill arrived at stalin's villa the prime minister could see that no expense had been spared Servants were all over the place, and the table groaned with every delicacy and stimulant that supreme power can command. Which was nice, but what really took the prime minister aback was the separate hot and cold taps in the bathroom. Now that was power. And that's not the end of that story. In fact, why don't we just dive right in? No pun intended. As Churchill wanted to freshen up, he went to his room to bathe and change. And he was looking forward to the bath, that is, until his personal physician, Sir Charles Wilson, and valet Sawyers heard their political master yelling from the bathroom. They ran upstairs, and Churchill was in the tub, in all his royal pinkness, shivering. He spotted Sir Charles and yelled, The water is bloody cold, and I don't know which one is the hot tap. The doctor looked at the taps and knew he had a 50-50 chance. Turning one... A deluge of fresh, very cold water hit the Prime Minister, as the doctor wrote, amidships, which is when Churchill started screaming afresh, calling Sir Charles incompetent. The doctor wrote, I flew to get help. But not to worry, Churchill, who had beaten death several times as a young man, would survive this. Ninety minutes later, having survived the bath, Churchill sat with Stalin. He was forearmed with his maps and charts, but it would be his words that mattered. The Prime Minister told the Premier of Russia that there would be no Second Front, no invasion that would draw German or other Axis troops out of Russian territory to ease the burden. Then the Prime Minister spent the next two hours explaining why this had to be so. Fortunately, Stalin sat in silence and let the Prime Minister explain himself. As Churchill later recounted, if Stalin was bitterly disappointed, he listened patiently to my explanation. He never once raised his voice, never once lost his temper. When I had told him the worst, we both sat in silence for a little while. At 10 p.m. Moscow time, the two men were sitting there in silence. Then Churchill drew a piece of paper to himself and began to draw a crocodile. This was to represent Nazi-controlled Europe. Now, it must be said that Churchill, a man who loved uniforms to the point that he had one for almost every occasion, and he loved to smoke cigars so much that he had a special air mask made up so he could smoke one while he piloted a plane, also loved using crocodiles as metaphors to each his own. In fact, the British Army had a flame-throwing tank that Churchill called the Crocodile because it was the first thing that came to mind. So the two men sat there silent, stewing in their gloom, but for different reasons. Then Churchill took his Crocodile drawing and used it to explain the why of his and FDR's decision about North Africa over Europe. He tells it this way, I explained to Stalin with the help of this picture how it was our intention to attack the soft belly of the crocodile as we attacked his hard snout. In this case, the soft underbelly was Sicily in Italy. The hard snout, that was northern France and western Europe. Which is why the western allies were not going there, not yet. The outcome would be predictable enough. But this opening got Stalin's attention, so the Prime Minister continued. In September, we must win in Egypt, and in October, in North Africa, all the time holding the enemy in northern France. As in, the dangerous part of the Kroc was being left alone, while its gut was to be ripped open. This Stalin could appreciate. And then it was the Soviet leader's turn to talk, and in his speech, Churchill could see that his Russian counterpart, understood Operation Torch perfectly. Here's Churchill describing Stalin's reaction. He recounted four main reasons for it. First, it would hit Rommel in the back. Second, it would overawe Spain. Third, it would produce fighting between Germans and Frenchmen in France. And fourth, it would expose Italy to the whole brunt of the war. It's worth comparing this moment to the earlier moments of Barbarossa, when Stalin made one massive mistake after another, wasting literally millions of lives. Of course, he saw and used them as cannon fodder, which had worked to a degree. Still, it was an expensive way to wage war, and no country, not even with a population of 195 million, as Russia had, could go on like this forever. And in mid-1942, it seemed likely that the Eastern Front would be a major war zone for years to come, which may have helped Stalin take in, and equally important, appreciate what Churchill was saying. It was around midnight local time when Churchill got back to his bedroom. He had a huge meal, is there any other kind, some drink, and of course a cigar. He later wrote of this moment, Tired as I was, I dictated my telegram to the war cabinet and the president after midnight. And then, with the feeling that at least the ice was broken and human contact established with Stalin, I slept soundly and long. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio, with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Going back to the Ohio with her erratic course, it's probably just easier to list her damages. First, there were the multiple fires raging up and down the ship. Next was the massive hole where the pump room was. Next, the deck was buckled and torn open, but, most importantly, the tanker's back was not broken. That would have been an end to her. As the chief engineer, Jimmy Wilde, later said, that's a welded hole for you. Rivets would have never stood it. Next, the hydraulic steering lines that went from the bridge to the rudder were in pieces, many pieces, But obviously, if they were ever to get going again, there would be a need to steer. So a manual control of the rudder was worked up. The chief mate grabbed three guys who weren't currently fighting fires or at a gun and took them down to a room about 20 feet below the poop deck, the high deck at the stern or back of the ship. Right away, these young men who had been voluntold to come down here could feel every bomb, that landed near the ship, and the AK-AK fire of their guns finished off loosening any teeth the bombs had missed. The chief mate, Douglas Gray, had them rig up a system so he could steer, using blocks and a one-inch chain, which went to the emergency helm. It was mounted on a bulkhead on the poop deck and Gray stayed at the wheel about the size of a Studebaker steering wheel most of the time, and he used a phone that was in the room that connected him to Captain Mason in the wheelhouse. Oh, and the bomb blast had torn a piece of metal mostly from the ship, which dragged, and it tried to steer the ship constantly to the port, so they had to steer a bit to starboard to even this out. It was a continuous exercise in fighting off... Going in circles. And the gyro compass and magnetic compass were dead too. So the captain and Lieutenant Dennis Barton picked a star and used that to sail ever closer to Malta. What made their hodgepodge of navigating possible was the phone connection. Captain Mason in the wheelhouse could see but not steer. Gray could steer but not see. So the rest of the voyage, however long it lasted, went something like this. Give it some port helm, some starboard helm. No, that's too much. Now back. Later, Mason would say, the phone in the wheelhouse was a godsend. While all this was going on, a few Axis planes continued to bomb the Ohio, sensing she was all but finished. Fortunately, Admiral Burrow was there with the destroyer Ashanti. He was about to increase speed to catch up to the main part of the convoy, but had a shouted conversation with Captain Mason first. How bad is the damage? Are you going to be able to proceed? Mason yelled back, in between bombing attacks. Well, it's not good but we seem to be gaining on this fire and my chief engineer tells me he thinks he can have steam in the boilers and the turbines going again in about 40 minutes. We're not giving up. We'll do all we can to get to Malta. Good show, Burrows yelled back. But if you can't get her back up to speed, you might want to head for the coast and proceed independently because I don't have enough destroyers to provide an escort for you. Good luck, Godspeed, and I'll see you in Malta. And with those words, the Ashanti sped up until she was gone. The problem for Ohio, besides all the damage listed, was that they had just entered the narrow Skirky Channel alone. The chief mate, Gray, who was steering the ship, knew action was needed. And being a Scotsman, he just happened to have a gallon of rum in his quarters. Sending someone down to fetch it, he gave all hands on the poop deck a generous serving, and then toasted the star that they hoped would lead them to Malta. Going back to the moment that Admiral Burrow had the Nigeria torpedoed out from under him, when Captain A.S. Russell had taken command of the convoy, only to scatter it with four zigzag orders, those of pedestal assumed, and can hardly be blamed for this, that the mission had de-evolved to every man for himself. Now, there are times when a plan completely breaks down, and indeed, it becomes every man for himself. But that was not the overriding order for pedestal. It was simply, get to Malta, at all costs. London knew that all 14 merchantmen would never reach the Mediterranean island. That's why so many ships had been laid on, plus a plethora of escorts. It was a numbers game. Inhumane? Yes, but so is war. So the next part is not exactly the finest moment in naval or merchant history. With the convoy scattered, Captain Hill of the destroyer Ledbury went after the ships, hoping to round them up to better protect them. Also, to do his part to make sure that something got through to Malta. It was then that he found one ship heading back to Gibraltar, The MV Port Chalmers, a cargo ship led by Commodore A.G. Venables, a retired Royal Navy officer, was found heading north by northwest, not the way to Malta. Here's how the Commodore explained his actions and the larger situation. Course was altered to port, and I determined to try and save the ship by leaving the convoy from the rear. Port Chalmers proceeded full speed to westward. Two other rear ships were informed of my intention and turned to follow me. They were not seen again, as presumably a destroyer found them and ordered them to rejoin the convoy. This destroyer overtook me and gave instructions to proceed to Malta, which was my intention as soon as circumstances appeared favorable. At first, of the two ships that were following the Chalmers, one was the freighter Dorset. The other was another freighter, M.V. Melbourne Star. They followed Venables for about five minutes, but then talked amongst themselves and turned round. Any direction was dangerous. Might as well head to Malta as they were close, and the escorts were heading that way, so it made sense. Before long, the Melbourne Star had the wounded Santa Elisa in her view. Pulling in closer, Captain Thomas of the Elisa was asked, "'Will you follow me?' to which he said, "'Yes.' Together they dashed for Malta at 16 knots, which left the Port Chalmers heading, quite alone, back to Gibraltar. Captain Hill of the Leadberry continued tracking down scattered merchant ships and had them turn round. His last quarry was the American ship Ameria likes, who was determined also to make it back to the rock. More specifically, it was her captain— that was determined to head west. But Captain Hill did not have time for this. First, he started with, If you go west, you will have no escort. You don't have a chance. Next, if you turn round, you could be in Malta by tomorrow. When both of these didn't work, it was time to use the captain's pride against him. Hill finally said, Well, all the English ships are heading for Malta. That did the trick. The American vessel started coming around. With this done, Hill looked around and saw something in the distance. Warily approaching it, he soon found himself closing in on the Ohio that was moving as if the navigator had alcohol instead of blood in his veins. Still, considering what Hill had just went through, he started this yelled conversation with Captain Mason on a positive note. The Admiral is waiting for you with cruisers and destroyers! But fortunately, Mason made it clear that he was heading for Malta, despite the hole in her pump room, and that the steering was being done manually. After watching Ohio's erratic course, Hill came back with, Do you want a tow? But Mason knew what he needed. No, thank you. We're under our own steam, but we haven't got a compass. Can you lead us? To this, Hill turned on a stern light for the shaky tanker to follow. What helped Mason, besides the blue light in front of him, was the lighthouse at Cape Bon on the coast and, it has to be said, the burning Clan Ferguson. Gruesome, but it was a reference point. Before too long, Mason had to yell through the loudspeaker to Hill, "'For God's sake, steer clear of the flames!' This was needed as the Ohio, it turns out, was still leaking kerosene. It didn't need or want to explode as it was almost within sight of Malta. Next comes another example of following the outlined plan as not doing so can lead to friendly fire. Going back to the destroyer Brahmin, after she sailed away from the blazing Deucalion, her crew got a bit lost. After sailing around Pantelleria three times, they spotted a silhouette. It had to be an Italian vessel coming from port. For only a small time before this, the Brahmam and its captain, Baines, had received a signal saying the Italian fleet was coming out to finish them off. Well, here it was. But just to be safe, a yeoman asked Baines, Challenge, sir? Baines assented. Nothing in return. A second challenge was offered. Nothing in response. During this, the breech blocks of the twin four inch guns were being closed. If that ship out there would not respond, she would be sunk. It was them or the strange, dark vessel coming ever closer. But just as the order to fire was about to be given, the other ship's signal light came on, replying dangerously late to the challenges. It was the Port Chalmers. Now that they were signaling each other, Bames signaled Commodore Venables to turn around and follow him. Yet, the Commodore was still hesitant. But that changed when the destroyer Penn showed up. The Brahmam got in front of the Port Chalmers, the Penn positioned herself to the stern, and the Commodore got the message. They all headed in the same direction, towards Malta. And with that, what was left of pedestal was now heading in the right direction. But there was still a line of Italian warships, subs, and torpedo boats to get past. And it could have been worse. Rome had four massive battleships in port, but that's where they stayed, as the Germans had promised before the war 200,000 tons of oil, each and every month, but they were barely getting 45,000 tons. Hence, the dreadnoughts stayed home. That was okay. Admiral De Zara had some 17 Italian warships converging from four different directions. When they all met up the next morning, it would be more than enough to finish off pedestal and her escorts. Having said that, De Zara still wanted air cover, but Field Marshal Kesselring stated, that he had no fighters to spare to keep Malta-based attacks away from the Italian ships. Still, this was about to go down, the final challenge before Malta was reached or never reached. Pedestal was scattered, but coming together, as were the Italian warships. But would they have air cover? Would it matter? Time would tell. It always does. Greetings everyone from Central Virginia. So, um, this is going to be weird. Uh, The Harris family has recently had a setback. Everybody is physically fine, um, nothing like that. But um, some things have changed, Uh, some things have come up and we had to cancel our trip to London this summer. So, to make a long story short, and I hate to do this, but desperate times, desperate measures. If you ever thought about making a donation, no matter how small, this might be a fortuitous time to do it. Well, fortuitous for us. Um, if If you want to, you can just obviously go to the website and click on the link that will take you to PayPal, or you can just go directly to PayPal and use the email address, wwii podcast at gmail or if you want to do something more direct, which people uh, have done in the past, just send me uh, an email to that same Gmail email address, and we'll work something out. So again, I um, I hate doing this, but you know sometimes you just gotta ask for help. So thank you for listening, and I will see you next week with the next episode. We are almost done with Pedestal, and then it's off to the eastern front i thought about doing a quick uh segue or it's not segue a little tangent into the uh one-sided war that was the invasion and occupation of madagascar Uh, i'll still do in the future i'm just not sure when i get the sense that people are eager to get back to the eastern front so that's what we'll probably do and we are almost finished with pedestal take care everyone